Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, it's Manveen here. Today, I'm handing the podcast over to the journalist Emily Sargent for part six of her special investigation, looking into a fascinating and until now, extremely secretive practice that still takes place all over Britain. Conversion therapy. This is Thinking Straight. Last time on Thinking Straight. We are loud and proud about our inclusion because we think that there's no point in being quietly inclusive. One's beliefs are so vital to one's identity. Even having no belief is also a belief, and that should be given absolute protection. The commitment is to follow Jesus who sacrificed his life, and we all sacrifice aspects of our lives as Christians. The government has promised that any conversion therapy ban will include gender identity as well as sexuality. We are determined to ban conversion therapy. It's horrendous that people are being tried to be, you know, diverted from what they actually are, whether it's being gay or being trans. Research suggests that trans people are twice as likely to have been offered some form of conversion therapy than any other group in the LGBTQ community. You're listening to Thinking Straight from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Sargent. Today, conversion and transitioning, sorting fact from fiction. In recent episodes, I took you with me to undercover conversion therapy sessions with a woman named Carol, not her real name. It's a practice that's condemned by mental health and medical professionals alike, but it isn't actually illegal. 
A ban might seem like a straightforward next step, but the movement pushing for one has at times been fraught with disagreement and division. And some of that division comes down to the toxic discourse around trans lives in Britain. Jo, go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Secretary of State. My question's about conversion therapy. The audio you can hear is an LBC radio talkback caller asking the Secretary of State for International Trade and Minister for Women and Equalities, Liz Truss, a question about how a ban on conversion therapy will exist alongside treatment for transgender individuals. Anybody who's um, particularly medics or psychotherapists or counsellors who are dealing with uh, trans people who believe that they're transgender, but who may actually be autistic or gay or going through a phase. It's reasonable to question whether a total ban would impact trans health care. But there has been a tendency in some of these sorts of debates to equate the process of transitioning with conversion therapy which relies on a fundamental misunderstanding about how transitioning happens in Britain. Have you found a way of bridging the gap between um, banning the conversion of gay people, but also allowing investigation of people who present as trans to, in particular, medical experts? Thank you, Joe. Secretary of State. So how complicated is it really to write legislation that bans conversion therapy in full while also protecting the rights of trans people to access healthcare. This episode, I wanted to pick the theory apart to see if I could get closer to understanding why the road to a total ban of this practice hasn't run smoothly. It's like a sort of having a buzz in the back of your head, that sort of constant nagging feeling that this isn't right, this isn't me, this isn't who I am. This is Dr. Kate Nambiar. How other people experience that may be very different. It's often thought as being this intense distress, discomfort at the perception of your gender, the body that that somebody has. She's describing what gender dysphoria feels like. I remember thinking about it as being like describing grief to somebody who's never experienced grief. It's a really profound, deep emotion. But if you've never experienced it, it's really hard to put that into words. You know, well, it's just a feeling of sadness, but it's much more than that, isn't it? And I think that's why some people find it hard to understand. Dr. Kate Nambiar works in gender identity and sexual health in a gender identity clinic in the UK. I'm also a trans woman and I transitioned when I was a medical student and that's really informed a lot of what I do in terms of my career and my passion as an activist campaigning for trans rights and for better trans healthcare. Kate has first-hand experience of the constant nagging buzz of gender dysphoria. For me it was that uh, discomfort moving on to almost distress at the perception of who I was in terms of my gender potential how I appeared, my interactions with other people. The process of transition helped just to turn down that volume of that. It doesn't go away completely. There are times when it just sort of, I can feel it again, but I can live with that. And how many years were you experiencing that feeling before you began your process of transitioning? I transitioned in my early 20s and the feeling started from... I guess around the time of puberty, but maybe before that, I don't think I had the words or the language to to describe it at that time, but certainly going through puberty, seeing those physical changes to my body, that was really upsetting, that was really distressing. 
And as much as I tried to suppress it, and there's many ways I did try to, to suppress those feelings, they kept resurfacing. It was a case of, like you push it down, but it just like pops back up again. It's not an easy time for anybody going through puberty, but I think wrestling with my gender and also not being able to tell anybody or feeling ashamed of that. Yeah, that was a really difficult time. In your line of work, have you come across any individuals who have been through some form of conversion therapy? Yes, sadly, I have quite a few. I think particularly people from a faith background or religious background. I've heard stories where the conversion therapy that they've experienced has been really horrible, really violent, really abusive, sometimes sexually abusive. People have described essentially what's called corrective rape, which is horrible. I think more commonly, the conversion therapy that's been described as is is a little bit more pernicious. It's often couched in a way of trying to help or, or to guide people back into an established norm. And that could be either through people accessing therapies or psychotherapy that tries to deal with things like unresolved trauma, all of that kind of stuff. In this way, conversion therapy techniques are the same across sexuality and gender identity. I think it's very much a case of this is what we see as being the normal thing to be, for example, and this is where you are, and this is what we're going to try to do to get you over there. Whatever that practice might be, whether that's some kind of therapy, whether that's prayer, whether that's the more horrible, abusive, violent stuff, it devalues that person, makes that person feel that they are somehow wrong, somehow need fixing, somehow broken. In her teens, Kate joined an evangelical church. I'd grown up with a sort of Christian family, but it was one of those kind of things that I felt that I had lost my way and you know, faith was going to guide me back to the right way of being that I could accept my life and try to live as a man. But things were increasingly difficult for Kate and she told a friend how she was feeling. A friend who was struggling with her own sexuality at the time and had been attending a kind of prayer gathering to quote-unquote resolve being a lesbian. She thought it was the right thing to do to tell the elders in the, in the church and then that, yeah, that, that sparked off a lot of things. Faced with the choice of some form of conversion therapy or rejection from the evangelical community, she eventually chose the latter. I decided that I'm not going to put myself through that. So I guess I didn't experience the degree of conversion therapy that many people do. And I think many people choose to go through that. It's not something that you kind of forced into in many cases. People feel that something's wrong and they choose to go through that conversion therapy. And that's even more destructive because it sort of implants that seed of internalised shame and internalised transphobia. Even though she said no to conversion therapy, that idea given to Kate that there was something wrong with her stayed with her for a long time. For many years, I just hated who I was. I felt it was a disease. And it took years to dispel that. It took years for me to feel that I could say I was proud to be a trans person and I was happy to come out and happy to talk about it and to share my experience it's yeah i think it's a really destructive and devastating thing to have experienced it's such a unique kind of abuse because it is as you say it's this 
planting a seed in somebody and really fanning the flames of often existing well I mean I was thinking about the conversations I've been having with this woman and it's upsetting to think about how much self-loathing existed for so long and how much she is identifying those negative feelings about yourself and then just amplifying them and really I just have been struggling to think of another kind of abuse or trauma that does that and the long-term effects the people that I've spoken to who have taken decades to recover from this because it's so deeply buried and so insidious and and has just worked their way so deeply into their own psyche it's just awful and I'm so sorry that you had that experience I'm sure your friend thought that she was doing the right thing but but in the case of people who are actually performing the conversion therapy and you come out to them and and then in that vulnerable moment they just completely take advantage Gender identity clinics have been at the centre of many fraught conversations online and in the media. For Kate, what gets lost is an understanding of how transitioning actually works and what it means for the trans people accessing this treatment. For the overwhelming majority of people, in fact, I would say nearly everybody who comes to, to, to gender services, this isn't something that somebody's just thought up on the spur of the moment. It's something that people have lived with for, for years in many cases. A lot of people have even, you know, made those steps into changing their social role, already making a big inroad into their transition. So really carefully thinking through the implications of transition, the feelings that they have about their, their gender. Certainly in my case, that was exactly what happened to me. You know, I'd done so much research and looked up so many things. And this was back in the 90s when we didn't really have much. You know, the internet was kind of in its infancy. There wasn't really much around, but I tried to do as much as I could. And then it was almost like a, it was like a final step. I thought, I can't do anything else. I'm going to go and talk to my GP. But often, once an individual reaches a doctor like Kate, there's another huge roadblock standing in the way. The demand for gender services vastly outstrips the supply that's provided through the NHS. And that's leading to big problems. People are waiting years in many cases to access help. And as a result, people's mental health is deteriorating and people are turning to try to buy their hormones off the internet or have treatment done in a kind of unregulated way, which isn't at all safe in many cases. We're in a situation where people are using up savings to try to access private care or to crowdfund care. And I think, you know, for one of the biggest economies in the world to have that happening in a health service, which we regard as being a service that's the sort of pride of the world, you know, that that's not right. Now, that doesn't feel good for me as a, as a healthcare professional. And how long are the waiting lists at the moment for somebody who was seeking treatment or care? At the moment, in our service, it's, it's coming up to about two and a half to three years, and we expect that to be getting longer. So if you're referred now, it's probably going to be even longer before you end up being seen. Uh, the, the wait times are pretty consistent across all of the gender services. Every month we receive vastly more referrals than we are able to see. So unfortunately, the waiting list just gets longer and longer. It's just really not adequate for the number of people who are seeking care. You know, we need to do better. The impact of that increasingly long wait on the mental health of trans people in the UK is significant. It's potentially it's devastating. People get to the point of seeking help from 
essentially a stranger. You know, you go and see somebody who you may not know particularly well, you know, your, your GP. Some people don't don't see the GP on a regular basis. And you, you're telling somebody something which is so deeply personal and you're really seeking help at that point. Often at that stage, you've gone through so many steps that to then be told, okay, we can make a referral, but you're going to have to wait. There's this sort of limbo period where nothing can happen through the NHS. And, and it has a really... It potentially has a really awful effect. And I've seen that in many people. I've seen people who start off being able to function really well and people deteriorate over that time if they're not given the help. It often then leads to, to people, to, you know, taking their own health care into their hands and, you know, trying to do things which potentially are not necessarily the safest option. Despite the fact that trans people are disproportionately subjected to conversion therapy, there are concerns that the government's proposed ban will leave them behind. The LGB Alliance, a lobby group facing accusations of transphobia, an allegation they deny, believe that affirming a child as trans, when they might otherwise grow up to be a cisgender, lesbian, gay or bisexual person, is itself a form of conversion therapy. For me, that just sounds bizarre. From what I understand of it, it comes from this notion of people describing it as you know, transing away the gay, you know, with this transition as a means of correcting homosexuality. And it's, it's kind of bonkers. It doesn't really make any sense. It's simply not what's happening. You know, we're not pushing people through medical transition in order to try to make them into straight people of the opposite gender. I mean, that's just, I don't think you could, you could even do that. I mean, it doesn't, to, to me, it just doesn't make any doesn't make any sense to have that kind of narrative. You know, somebody's sexuality can evolve in parallel to their gender, and we see so many people whose sexuality changes as part of their their transition, and that's fine. Many people whose sexuality doesn't change in terms of who they're attracted to, uh, and that's absolutely fine too. It, it really isn't about trying to correct even if we could, somebody's sexuality. But it seems to have pervaded the psyche of certain people, and I've seen it reported in the media. I guess it springs from a misunderstanding of what we do in gender services. These days, the care delivered by doctors like Kate aims to be individualised to each patient, rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. So the decision to start medical treatment, actually, in some cases, is really straightforward. In other cases, people are needing time to question their gender. They want to explore that in, in more detail and, you know, we'll adapt our care accordingly. You know, I work with an amazing team of psychologists who put in that time to work with our patients to think about going through medical transition. Is that the right thing for that person? It's very much individualised. Even when it comes down to the medical treatments, some people want to just have hormone therapy. Some people just need particular surgeries. Some people need a, you know, a combination of both. There's all sorts of things that can happen. I don't understand why people are conflating this because it's just a false way of thinking about how we operate in terms of helping people come to terms with their gender. In a moment, nuts and bolts of a comprehensive ban and a jump back in time to the 80s. But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. 
visitthetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. The way trans people are talked about right now, by politicians, by commentators and journalists, it all reminds me of the fear-mongering and hysteria that surrounded gay people in the 80s. It's something that Professor Michael King talked about in episode one of this series. They were incredibly hostile to the idea of homosexuality as a normal variation of human sexuality and had all sorts of theories about why men and women Um, might turn away from what they regarded as the heterosexual substrate. Listening to the stories of trans survivors of conversion therapy and the importance of trans access to healthcare, I wonder whether attempts to exclude trans people from a ban is a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy. I would say that it's almost necessary to put those together because if you don't, then you're just leaving one group really isolated. I think that's part of it. You know, if you leave trans people in, you know, just isolated, we don't have any legal protection against uh, conversion therapy uh, and therefore that makes us uniquely vulnerable. Is there a danger that a comprehensive ban on conversion therapy could make it difficult for medical practitioners to help patients explore their gender and potentially to transition? There is no legitimacy to that argument. Again, that comes from a misunderstanding of what the process of gender exploration is about. It's not trying to persuade people not to be trans. That's not what we do. If anything, it's going to improve the care that people have because it will prevent people who are trans and gender diverse being exploited or taken advantage of or, or manipulated by individuals who are trying to sort of, you know, correct their their transness by trying to to talk people out of it. I think in many respects that if we do have a workable and robust enough ban to conversion therapy, that actually people will come to see gender services in a much healthier state. People will be less broken by the time they come and see us if they don't have to endure going through horrible conversion therapy in advance. Some commentators from various spheres, whether it's religious communities, some voices in the media have suggested that in the case of trans healthcare, medical professionals might be afraid to do anything other than affirm an individual who comes in experiencing gender dysphoria. In terms of your professional and personal experience, it is, I suppose I'm interested to know what you think of that argument, whether there's any weight to it, whether you think doctors would feel this pressure to rush people towards transitioning in a way that they wouldn't have done prior to a ban. I think it's really interesting that you put gender-affirming 
treatment alongside rushing people through care. And I don't see those two as being sort of, you know, as being linked. I think that more and more of our care is gender affirming. I don't see that as a problem. I really don't see that as a problem. In fact, I think that's the way that we should be moving as practitioners within gender identity. This whole notion of having to, you know, jump through hoops or prove yourself to be trans, the, the evidence shows that that's actually more harmful than it is helpful to people. And often people have their care delayed as a result of doing that. That doesn't mean that we, we don't help people to explore their gender if that's what people need. That doesn't mean we completely abandon people or just say, right, okay, um, here you go, here's some hormones, off you go. That's not what it's like. It's a process. None of this happens overnight. None of this happens without care being given to people in terms of their mental health and their support socially to work within the society that they're living in. I think that this whole notion that gender-affirming care is somehow bad or somehow it's reckless is something that I would really strongly push back against. It's, it's, it's not. I think that's the way that we should be moving. In 2017, around 3,300 patients transitioned through an NHS gender identity service. Of these patients, Research shows less than 1% have since experienced regret or detransitioned. And despite many stories of the numbers of people identifying as trans soaring, the most recent figures from Stonewall still suggest that only around 1% of the population, around 600,000 people, identify as trans. The government says it's committed to protecting trans people. But for trans people... Britain is becoming an increasingly hostile place. Just four years ago, in 2017, a British transgender woman was granted residency in New Zealand on exceptional humanitarian grounds because of the years of discrimination and abuse she faced here. Internationally, Britain's reputation for transphobia is growing. Sadly, no, I don't feel supported in this country. I think that... The moves that this government have made have been tokenistic at best, cynical, really, I would say, is more, a more accurate way of describing their approach. The fact that they'd completely disbanded their LGBT advisory panel. This is the same advisory panel you heard about in episode one. The same one Jane Ozan, a gay evangelical Christian and founder of the Ozan Foundation, was a member of until she resigned in March this year. That speaks volumes. The fact that we had an extensive consultation about reform to the Gender Recognition Act and an overwhelming proportion of people backed reform. The Gender Recognition Act is the act by which people in Britain can legally change their gender. Two years ago, the government committed to updating the act. One of the key hopes for the trans community was that the process of transitioning would be demedicalized to reduce the stigma. But in September last year, when the updates were announced, they were minimal and did not include the right to self-identify in terms of gender without a medical report. It excludes anybody who has a non-binary identity. People non-binary don't have any recourse to legal recognition or unless they force themselves into a binary gender, which may not fit well with them. It relies on essentially pretty much outdated evaluation and submitting of evidence to prove the gender you say you are. And the majority of people backed reform to that and changed to that. The, the fact that it was ignored 
tells you everything you need to know about how this government view certainly trans people and I think more widely LGBTQ plus people's lives. In in my view, it, it feels like we are we're not important. And you know, going back to what we've been talking about in terms of conversion therapy, the fact that this this bill to ban conversion therapy is just sort of being kicked around and it's not being taken seriously. We need this as a community. We need that protection from law. And the fact that they haven't been willing to step up to the plate really is is worrying. I know that there are, there are lots of accusations that as a government, they've been unsupportive of the LGBT plus community in general, but they've been accused particularly of transphobia. And I wondered if you would agree that that community within the LGBT community have faced particularly bad treatment from this government. Yes, I would agree. It's not just from government, but I think that they have uniquely failed to step up and help us. I think we have faced really unprecedented criticism. Even if I look back at, you know, my early years in transition, you know, what it was like in the in the 90s, and yes, we had a very sort of hostile press at that time. We had no legal protections at all. People would lose their jobs quite regularly if they came out as being trans. The shape of things has changed. You know, we have those legal protections in place, but that doesn't stop people from trying to undermine us, to make us feel as if we are you know, unwanted and unwelcome within society. There's this ongoing debates about you know, validity of trans lives, the sort of conflation of being a trans person, a trans woman in particular, and access to female spaces, toilets, change rooms, all that sort of thing. We've been doing that for decades. It's never been a problem. But suddenly now it's being raised as being potentially this is letting male predators into women's spaces. It's it's deeply harmful to hear that. That's simply not happening. It's not reflected in the statistics, in the research. That kind of thinking starts to enter people's heads and the government do nothing to dispel that. The truth statistically is that trans people are regularly the subject of violent attacks rather than being the violent attackers themselves. Stonewall's 2018 trans report found that two in five trans people and three in ten non-binary people had experienced a hate crime or incident because of their gender identity in the prior 12 months. It also found that more than a quarter of trans people in a relationship in the previous year had faced domestic abuse from a partner. For a period, I worked at a women's refuge myself, and it feels like there's a real disconnect between the culture of fear-mongering around female-only spaces and the reality. There are trans people who I've spoken to who don't feel safe in this country, and that's incredibly sad. A report from the LGBT plus charity Gallup in 2020 found that four out of every five trans people had experienced a hate crime in this country within the past year. Beyond the government, the level of hostility within the mainstream press toward trans people has had a big impact on the lives of trans people in this country. We talked earlier about that sort of internalised transphobia, that internalised sort of self-loathing. If you're seeing headlines and you're seeing reports about trans people being predators or trans people being unwelcome in society, it fuels that and it fuels that sense of being unwelcome. It feels that sense of being um, ashamed of who we are. It's really hard to say, yeah, I'm proud of being trans, if uh, the messages that you're receiving about what it means to be a trans person that, you know, are so negative all the time. I felt really 
apprehensive about speaking to you as a journalist. And that's the case for many trans people. Many people just won't engage with media. And I think that's also not helpful because we don't get to hear everybody's voices. There are lots of people out there who have so much to say and so much to give. And yet, why would you stick your head above the, the parapet to say anything if all that's going to happen is you're going to, get, going to get shot down? You have a sort of information vacuum. People will fill it with whatever they think should be there. And that's dangerous because a lot of times that's an inaccurate portrayal of what it's actually like to be trans. You know, those conflations that we talked about earlier about what it means to have treatment from gender services, what conversion therapy is about, those kind of mistruths just sort of get passed down and start to, to enter people's psyche. There's also this sort of fatigue about having to constantly debate your existence Oh, it's honestly just having to sort of constantly justify, yes, you know, this is who I am. This is my life. Just to say, yes, I'm a woman. It becomes a massively charged political statement. We want to move on from that. We want to be able to talk about other things, but we keep having to come back to that. Just saying trans women are women. For many people, that is something which just throws up this emotive debate. And yet for me, that's just a fundamental truth of who I am. It's a kind of serious subject and we've kind of focused a lot on the sort of the negative side of things. I think it's important to bear in mind that, you know, for, you know, all of us who, are, who transition, it's almost overwhelmingly it's a positive experience despite all of this. I don't regret anything about my, my transition. I've had medical complications. I've had to deal with transphobia. I've had to deal with that internalised feeling of self-loathing, having to get over the kind of conversion therapy that I experienced the, you know, losing friends, all that sort of stuff. And it shaped me into the person that I am today. And I wouldn't change a thing. I'm so much happier now, living as I am, living in my skin, you know, than I ever was before trying to be somebody else and trying to pretend to be somebody else. In response to this investigation, Carol said, I have never held myself out as a provider of, nor do I offer counselling to any client with the aim to change their sexuality. To the best of my knowledge, there are no UK therapists who have ever described themselves as conversion therapists. The term conversion therapy is an imposed term, is misleading and forces an implied definition of conversion. Next time on Thinking Straight. Why are we continuing to listen to perpetrators of abuse? It is abusive. There's no other way of looking at it. It's homophobic and it's transphobic. And we live in a society that says that that's wrong. So whether or not it's religiously motivated or not, I don't really care. It's still wrong. It is based on the fundamental principle that being lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender is wrong, is a flaw, a failing, something that needs to be corrected. You've been listening to Thinking Straight, a podcast series brought to you by subscribers to The Times and Sunday Times. I'm journalist Emily Sargent. The producer of this series is Leona Hamid, with editorial support from Asia Fuchs. The series is made in collaboration with Story Hunter. The executive producer for Story Hunter is Kirsty Hunter. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Vulcan Kiseltuk. 
The next episode of Thinking Straight will be in the Stories of Our Times feed next Friday. You can also find the series in the Reporter feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans on 116-123 or Switchboard, the LGBT helpline on 03-00-330-0630, open from 10am till 10pm every day. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.